Well, good morning. Good to uh, be together again, and I hope that uh, last Sunday you were able to celebrate a really meaningful uh, Easter as we just contemplate, you know, all the good news that's packed into Easter. I think there's enough good news. Jam-packed Easter is enough good news for the entire world. I always think about this. First uh, John two two, uh, the Bible says this that uh, Jesus is the propitiation or the appeaser, okay, for our sins, but not just for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. When I think about that, I realize that you know there's a lot of people walking around on the planet who have no clue what God has done for them, and it's already been accomplished on the cross, uh, and so. Um, this morning, I'd like to invite you to uh, think uh, with me for a couple of minutes, and I'd like to, uh, for the next few weeks, just talk about some of the changes that the gospel actually works in us when we embrace the gospel wholeheartedly, or when it gets into first place in our life for the next few weeks. And um, you might remember that in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says the gospel was delivered to us as of first importance. There's nothing more important to understand in life than the gospel. Because why? Because it affects every other area of our lives. And so I wanted to just talk about some of the uh, changes that happen when the gospel sort of permeates us or marinates us or, forgive me for this word, controls us. What happens when the gospel gets into first place and actually starts to control our lives. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you might ask the question, you know, what controls me? Who or what is in control in my life, you know? And I think some people might say, well, you know, or you might kind of just discern that a lot of people are controlled by their past. A lot of times you'll ask people, you know, well, why, why do you think like that? Or why'd you do that? And it's like, well, you know, that's how I grew up. That's my tradition. That's That's what I do, you know, because that's how I grew up and point to something in the past. I think other people might say, you know, uh, I'm controlled by, if they think about it, other people. Other people's opinions and attitudes and so forth. And my spouse is a control freak and my boss is a control freak. And, you know, I'm just sort of controlled by what other people say and do around me sort of controls what I do and what I say. I think there might be some people who would say, you know, uh, I'm pretty much controlled by circumstances. My moods and my attitudes go up and down depending on what's happening around me. Uh, You might know some news junkies who just, you know, sit on the news day in and day out and there's all kinds of things that are happening and my mood goes up or down, mostly down when I watch the news, you know, because why? Because circumstances are in control of my life. And then there'd be other people who'd probably say, you know what, nobody controls me, you know, until something goes wrong and then they blame somebody else and then you know kind of really where they're at. But what would happen if the gospel actually controlled us? What would happen if the gospel got into first place in our life, was the single most important thing uh, that's ever come our way, and uh, what would happen if our first consideration when any situation or any relationship uh, came our way, our first consideration would be, you know, we used to say, what would Jesus do? 
Or how would the gospel impact my response or reaction to this or that situation or relationships? And I'd like to suggest to you this morning that one of the first things that would happen is that the whole concept of forgiveness uh, would come into play. Forgiveness. Uh, When we embrace the gospel, when the gospel sort of permeates us, we realize that holy, holy, holy God holds absolutely nothing against us, that he has forgiven us for every sin and every offense and everything that we've ever done that would create a barrier between us. He's allowed his son to go to the cross, take our place there, vent his anger and wrath that we deserve on Christ so that he can turn to us and say, I love you and I will not let anything come between us. I have forgiven your past, your present, and your future sins on the cross on Good Friday. And I would suggest to you that when you let that idea get from our heads down into our hearts, it changes us. It changes the way we interact with situations and other people. Um, When we let that get down deep, it changes us. I want to suggest to you this morning that Jesus is the only normal person who ever lived. He's the only well-adjusted person who ever lived. Um, He's God's model for us, right? I mean, Romans 8, 29, the Bible says that God is actually at work conforming us to be more like him. He's our model. He's the only normal person who ever lived. And so... um, This person, Jesus, the only normal person, never distorted by sin or handicapped by limitations, this Jesus is uh, teaching his disciples in Matthew chapter 18. And um, one day, Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, if your brother ever sins against you, uh, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone, and if he listens to you, you've gained your brother and so on. And so Peter, right, he's been listening to what Jesus is saying, and in verse 21, Peter comes up to Jesus, and I'm sure you're familiar with this question, but Peter asks a question. He says, Lord, how often can my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. That's 490 if you do the math, right? But the idea is uh, an infinite amount. Why? Well, because that's the amount that God has forgiven each one of us. An infinite amount. We were created to be like him, and we're not. We've all fallen far short of what God created us to be. And so... Jesus then goes on to tell a story, a parable, if you will, uh, about the idea of forgiveness. And the first part of this story is in Matthew chapter 18. And um, they make these uh, print in the Bible, smaller and smaller. The older I get, the smaller it gets. I just, I gotta, you know. So therefore, Jesus is talking. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. The kingdom of heaven, you know, uh, may be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts, wanted to make things right between him and his servants. 
And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring the king, have patience with me and I will pay you back everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now that's the first part of uh, Jesus' story. And uh, in the first part of the story, um, of course, the king is God. You and I were the servant and uh, we owe a huge debt. Uh, 10,000 talents. A talent uh, was the highest sort of denomination, and a talent, uh, depending on who you read, uh, was either worth two years' worth of work, which would mean at that rate it would take you 20,000 years to pay back the debt you owed, right? Which, in other words, Jesus is trying to put an impossible amount of debt that we could never work off ourselves. And uh, some people say it's up to 20 years that a talent was worth and so forth. So, Anyway, it's a huge amount of debt that is forgiven of each one of us, of this servant. And, you know, so many people are like this servant who say, listen, you know, just give me more time. I'm going to try harder, and I'm going to make it right with the king. You know, uh, there are many people who, you know, really evaluate. If you ask people, you know, when you die, do you think you're going to heaven? And people say, well, yeah, I'm a good person, and they start to list their good things and so forth. They don't come anywhere near the debt that we owe. And so then there's the second part of the story, and I want to suggest to you that the servant um, never put his faith in what the master did when he forgave him. Because look what happens. Um, You know the story probably. Uh, But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. Denarii was like a day's worth of labor. A um, hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, pleaded with him, asked for the same thing. Can you please have patience with me? I just need more time. I will pay you back everything that I owe. Um, <clears throat> but he refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. The second part of the story, it seems to me, is about how our forgiveness is supposed to affect our relationships with other people. Uh, When forgiveness gets past our head as a concept and down into our heart and we begin to lean on it and we recognize that we are totally free, that we are bound for heaven, that we've been forgiven of every offense that ever came up, Every thought, every word, every action that that is offensive to God's all been taken away. When that gets out of our head and down into our heart, it changes us. And it changes how we relate to other people. Everybody knows this is wrong, right? This guy who's forgiven this huge debt goes out and grabs a guy by the throat to make him pay back a small amount of debt. But the third part of the story is the shocker. The third part of the story um, starts in uh, the 30th verse. He refused and put the guy in prison and so forth. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all 
that debt, right? Because you asked me, you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master, who represents God in this story, in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. Now here's the shocking verse. See if this fits into your theology. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I'm like, whoa. Let's think about that, Jesus. Are you telling me that God is going to treat me the same way I treat other people? And you think about this, how radical a statement this really is. Um, The gospel is intended to change us, to change everything about us. I want to suggest to you that anger is the opposite of forgiveness. Do you notice that there's total forgiveness of everything, but when that forgiveness is not received and believed and leaned on and have our faith put in that, it creates anger in the Lord. It makes God angry. And uh, when we refuse his forgiveness to change us, when we don't put our faith in what Jesus did, when we don't really believe that the gospel is as good as it really is, when we won't forgive ourselves or forgive other people who offend us, um, it angers God. Because why? Because we are his representatives in this world. And the same way he treats us is the way he wants us to treat the next guy. You know, and uh, without that, his love and his forgiveness and the gospel just doesn't keep going forward. And so that's uh, been entrusted to us. Uh, Jesus built this, you know, right into the Lord's Prayer, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us, right? Right? right into the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus taught the Lord's Prayer, he not only included it in the prayer, but as soon as he said amen, he went on and said this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Somehow there's a contingency here that the reality of our forgiveness, if it's not born out in our lives, if it's not practiced in our relationships with other people, um, it really angers our God. The opposite of forgiveness is anger. And anger really is the result of us saying to somebody else, you owe me, you owe me. That's where anger comes from, you owe me. Uh, you owe me money, you owe me respect, you owe me, um, you know, a promotion, uh, you owe me the truth, you owe me your friendship, you owe me to be loyal, on and on and on. You owe me. I did all this for you, and you owe me back, and you didn't come through for me, so now I'm angry at you, legitimately. You deserve it to be uh, angered at. When we don't get our way, Uh, we become angry simply because we don't get what we want. And, you know, just think about something you might be angry about. Think about someone you might be angry about. Is it because you feel that they owe you, you know? And have you created a debt-to-debtor relationship? Because, you know, 
somebody owes us. Uh, and this goes on, you know, think about it in marriages, think about it with our children, uh, think about it with other family members and so forth. You know, we do so much for them and then they don't do it back and then we get angry and, you know, we don't talk to them for, uh, you know, five or six years and on and on and on it goes. And Jesus says, listen, you have to forgive them the way I forgave you. And you have to uh, go first, you have to take that initiative. Now, I think people without the gospel often think that the only way to deal with anger is to get even. Have you ever spent any time, I won't ask you to put your hand up, but have you ever spent any time thinking about, that really hurt, how am I going to get even? I have, right? Um, How am I going to get even with that person who just hurt me? And people without, you know, the gospel think about that a lot. How can I get even? But I would tell you, it never works. It never works. First of all, how could you possibly get even like in a divorce situation where somebody walks out on you? How do you get even with that? You can't. And when you try, you just bring yourself down to that person's level. And then that's the person that's controlling your life instead of the gospel. Instead of Christ, through the gospel, controlling uh, our lives. Instead of allowing the spirit to have freedom in us uh, to uh, make us more like Jesus, you know? Uh, when anger is the primary, uh, has the primary place in our life, it spreads. It's like a cancer. It, it starts to control us. And uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, gone through this, but you might notice that uh, when you have, uh, we call them anger issues, right? Pretty soon your anger sort of spreads to everybody. And there's nothing anybody can do right. And you're just an angry person. And no matter what anybody does, you know, you're just biting their heads off and so forth. Because... Anger has taken the place of forgiveness, and it's grown. And, uh, and then maybe you hear that, hey, uh, the king wants an appointment with you. He wants to settle accounts. And, uh, you know, your wife or your husband drags you to church on Easter Sunday and um, makes you go, and there you're expecting to hear about how mad God is at you for all of your shortcomings, and instead you find out that even though God was mad, He took his anger out on Jesus and that he loves you and that he wants to forgive you. He wants to wipe away all of those debts that we created by not living the life that he called us to live. And um, he already vented his anger on Jesus. Uh, God turned his back on his only begotten son for the first time in all of eternity on the cross. And it led Jesus to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know if you've ever felt forsaken. But this is uh, like an eruption in the very trinity, in the very uh, nature of the Godhood. There's this eruption on the cross. Because as scripture says, Jesus became our sin. So that we could be free. So that we could be forgiven. And so now God is offering to forgive everything, past, present, and future, to remove all punishment for all of eternity. It's radical forgiveness. We don't deserve it. You can't add to it. You can't contribute to it. Uh, You can't earn it, you know. But God asks us to put our faith, to stake our lives, to build our life around that truth. Because when we do, it will change us. 
And we've been entrusted to represent our God in our world at this point in time in order that we might continue to spread the good news of the gospel. So there is a way to lose our anger. Uh, I think we could take it from somebody who uh, knows uh, the Apostle Paul was so angry, he was fighting against God even though he didn't know it. And uh, there must have been some anger issues in the church at Ephesus because when Paul writes to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, here's what he says. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. All of those words are related to anger, right? They all represent kind of contributing streams to uh, anger. And then he says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Now here's the line. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. That's the kicker. Forgiveness isn't, you know, pretending it never happened. Forgiveness isn't trying to make light of it and saying, oh, well, it wasn't that big of a deal. No, forgiveness is releasing a debt that somebody owes us in order that we might be free from their particular sin. Uh, This is like a gospel upgrade, right? That last phrase that we should forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. In fact, you can kind of tell how much you understand how God has forgiven you uh, on the basis of whether or not there's any anger left inside of you or not. They sort of do an anger inventory, if you will. And you can sort of figure out, you know, where I'm really at in understanding how good the gospel really is that the God of the universe uh, has freed me from all of my shortcomings. There's only one sin, right, that the Bible says uh, is unforgivable. And uh, in Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus mentions this. And again, uh, just as a point of reference in Matthew chapter 12, And uh, verse 31, um, Jesus, uh, let's see, says this about uh, the one sin uh, that's not forgivable. If I can find 31 here. Well, you can probably read it, right? (laughs) Therefore, I tell you that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Every sin. And every blasphemy, anything I've ever said against God in any way, it'll all be forgiven. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. The one sin that's not forgiven, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And uh, if you read the whole context here, you'll see that really what uh, is being talked about here is when uh, somebody understands that Christ is who he says he is and that he did what he said he did and then attributes that to Satan. Uh, that is unforgivable. When you know that Jesus is who he says he is and that he did what he did and you attribute it to somebody else and especially to Satan, uh, that, the Lord said, is unforgivable. And so the guy in Jesus' story, I would suggest to you, didn't let the good news of forgiveness sink in deep enough and uh, I think he probably thought of himself as still in debt to God who said, you owe me something. 
And I wonder this morning ourselves, is there something that we think that God is still holding against us? Something that we think, you know, we did that we know is wrong and, and we feel guilty over it or whatever. And uh, we still think that we, oh, and we're trying to work it off. And if I just have more time and work a little harder, you know, I can really get right with God. Rather than embracing the gospel and understanding our tremendous position with God. I am... Um, this past uh, week, I did a funeral for a friend of mine who I've known for many years. And uh, I asked his family if I could uh, share his story with you because uh, it's a great illustration, I think. N- not a great illustration, it's a terrible illustration of what I'm trying to uh, say here this morning about forgiveness. Uh, this guy had three daughters, <clears throat> and um, when his youngest was 14, she took a babysitting job, and she was all excited about it. He wasn't too sure. He thought she was kind of young to be doing that, and, and uh, he was, uh, he's a veteran. He was an Army vet, and, um, you know, he's a typical dad. He thought, well, all right, I'll let her do this, but uh, when she was there for a while, he just had this feeling, so he got in his car, and he said, I'm going to just drive by the house and, and just make sure everything's okay. It's what fathers do, right? And uh, so he drives by the house, and his daughter is out in, uh, on the sidewalk, and she's pushing a carriage, the baby in the carriage. But the guy who hired her is walking along with her, right? So he thinks to himself, that's kind of odd. I should stop. I should say, well, why are you hiring her to babysit? You're still here kind of thing. But he didn't stop. He said, and I've had you know, many discussions with him over the years, uh, he said, you know, I know what my daughter is going to say. Dad, you know, I'm a big girl. I can take care of this. I can do this. You don't have to check on me, you know. And so he rode by. Well, uh, the girl never came home. She was kidnapped, 14-year-old girl. And uh, they found her body. She was strangled to death. It was terrible. And so uh, my friend, he felt so guilty. He just felt it was his fault. He took the whole thing on himself, and he just believed that it was his fault. He should have stopped. He should have said something. He's an army vet. He protects our country, and he couldn't protect his daughter. That's what he kept saying. I protected my country, you know, and I served, and, but I couldn't protect my own daughter. What's wrong with me? And he just felt guilty. And no matter how I tried to help him move past that guilt, he just couldn't do it. And so the guy was uh, caught and tried and got 25 years to life. And so after he was in jail for 25 years, uh, or for 10 years, uh, he came up for parole. And so my friend, you know, who had all this guilt, uh, the guilt turned into anger, right? And he was like, I am not going to let this guy get out on parole. And do you know my friend, um, he, he got uh, almost 3,000 people to sign a petition against uh, him being paroled. Now, you know, you might say maybe the first hundred or so would come probably pretty easy. He knows probably a hundred people, people in our church signed and, and so forth. But then he got, went on to get almost 3,000 people. So he went to grocery stores, he went to the bank, he went wherever people would be standing in line, and he told his story over and over and over and over and over again to get people to sign so that he could lock that guy up and not let him get out. And sure enough, uh, the parole board did not parole him, and he was locked up in jail. But my friend discovered that, you know what, that didn't satisfy him. That wasn't enough. 
And then my friend went into a deep depression. And uh, he became like a vegetable. Now, I'm going to tell you, this guy, uh, you know, he loved Jesus. He loved Jesus more than life. He had a Bible. He had a big, thick Bible. And, you know, I used to preach, and he would hear something. He didn't, you know, jive with him. Or he'd call me up, Dave, can we have coffee? And we go for coffee, and he'd come with his Bible, and it was full of notes, and he opened it up. Everything was underlined in different colors and everything. I mean, this guy knew his scriptures and loved Jesus more than life. But this anger that turned into depression and eventually totally disoriented my friend. Um, it, it was like, uh, you know, the uh, condition that some soldiers have after they go to war and they come back, the, uh, the stress order, disorder. And uh, he, he just totally, somebody had to go pick him up to bring him to church. He couldn't really carry on a conversation after a while. And then he finally died, like not this week, but the week, last, the week before that, and we had his funeral on Monday. Two days before he died, He said to his other two daughters who were at his bedside, I'm so tired of being angry. I'm going to forgive the guy. And that's how he died. That whole, I'm going to say it's probably 30 years of his life that was lost because anger overpowered the gospel. Anger and, and depression and frustration overpowered and controlled in place of where the gospel needed to control. And I don't say it to be critical uh, because certainly this poor man, I mean, which one of us would do better than that in a situation like that? Happened right in Fairfield, uh, Connecticut. So the gospel redefines forgiveness. Forgiveness uh, is canceling a debt. And so Peter got the answer to his question from the Lord. Whenever anybody sins against us, hurts us, rejects us, abandons us, offends us, embarrasses us, forgive them. Or God will treat you like you're treating them. If we refuse to forgive, uh, we will be the one who loses. Refusing to forgive is self-destructive, but only a forgiven person understands that. Two thoughts in closing. First of all, a Christian forgives not on the basis of what was done to us by somebody else, but on the basis of what was done for us on the cross. A Christian forgives not on the basis of what somebody else does to us, but on the basis of what somebody else, Jesus, did for us on the cross. That's the basis of our forgiveness. And we don't treat others the way we've been treated by them. We treat others the way we've been treated by our Father in heaven. When the gospel takes control and when it sort of uh, marinates us and uh, begins to be the first consideration in all of our dealings in this life, uh, forgiveness becomes prominent. Not because other people deserve it, but because we've been radically forgiven ourselves. You know what Peter thought, I think? I think Peter thought that forgiveness was all about the other person, letting them off the hook and and so forth, and not being stepped on. But Jesus knows that forgiveness is all about us 
being freed from other people's offenses so that we might live a gospel-first life, a Christ-first life. Jesus paid a debt that he didn't owe because I owed a debt I couldn't pay. When we forgive as God has forgiven us, we pay a debt that we don't owe because our offender owes a debt that they can't pay. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, I think this story that Jesus told about the kingdom of heaven being like a king who wants to settle accounts helps us to realize that the forgiveness that you've given to us is a radical kind of forgiveness. And we enjoy it, we believe it, we understand it, we've heard it many, many, many times. But to lean on that forgiveness, to put our faith in that forgiveness to the point where we understand ourselves to be perfectly clean, to be ready to meet you, to be forgiven of all of those things, past, present, and future, which might stand between us. Father, when that gets into our hearts, that we might be able to forgive from the heart, even as Jesus has forgiven us, I pray, Father, that that would be more and more our experience, that we would give the gospel more and more control in our lives as we go forward. For Jesus' sake, amen.